This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, brought to you in association with Sportful. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me as ever is Mr. James Spender. Good afternoon, Jason. And on today's episode, we have a man who's recently retired from professional cycling to take up a new career in professional cycling. Yes, we are joined by Nathan Haas, who is swapping the World Tour Peloton in 2022 for a career in gravel racing. But before we get down to the nitty gritty with Nathan, James and I are going to run down some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. Mr. Spender, a pleasure, as always, to be joined with you, even more so that we are in the same building today, which is lovely. We're actually back in new offices, which is great for the team, team cyclist. It means I get to see you, it means we get to eat overpriced Lebanese food from street markets, street food markets at the bottom of our building. But we also get to podcast near each other, which is always good. I'm pleased to report that the coffee here is as bad as we'd expect from an office. Um, and I'm pleased to report that if you want to go get some good coffee from surrounding coffee shops, you're putting, you're spending at least £3.50. <laughs> it is bonkers. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. The price of living has really shot up. You know, we know it's 5% inflation for this first quarter, probably 3% average over the last year. You're really looking at some seriously inflated prices that have crept up, particularly into the <laughs> hospitality industry during the lockdowns, when they can just levy these little incremental changes. Uh, anyway, but that's 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 an aside. But actually, you know what, James? That brings me on to the things I'm not liking at the moment. Oh, go on then, please. So do tell the things I'm not liking at the moment are there's a couple of things. There's a, what, my first one is a cycling related thing, and is it's the early season races that don't really mean anything. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we've got one happening now. So we've got one happening now in the Saudi tour. Um, so today was stage one, and from what I could see, I didn't attempt to try and watch it live. I'm not interested. And, I, you know, you, you, people have their own opinions, political, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, the races through the desert do bore me no end. Um, apparently, the live coverage failed, so no one got to see the first stage of today's race, um, which begs the question, if nobody saw stage one of the Saudi tour take place, did it ever happen? Basically, yeah, these these early season races, I understand the peloton has to like warm up and get back into it and back, you know, get their heart rates back up to 190 beats per minute before they can go into the bigger stuff. But, you know, wake me up when umlaut het news blood begins. 
as Green Day once sang. Because yeah. <laughs> I, the season doesn't start until then for me, in all honesty. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you share the same opinion, but until that first opening weekend in Belgium, I'm really not that fussed. It does seem like an interminable waste of time, um, and it also seems like if it was anywhere else in the world, it just wouldn't be happening. And it is very much connected to with to certain elements of, <laughs> of certain parts of the world. Let's put it that way. Anyway. Um, More importantly, though, yeah. what is really get grinding my gears at the moment is that I got an almond croissant and a cappuccino from a coffee shop in Denmark Hill Station the other day. Yes. Guess how much? Uh, £7.90. £6.30. Wowzers for both. I know. That's quite a lot. Quite a lot, James. But I've seen I've seen croissants go for four pounds happily. Blimey, where? Where? Like all over London, all over That's the world. Ridiculous. It's insane. So, like I say, the cost of living has just shot up, and our wages are not going up with it. Sad to say. Exactly. Across, I mean, across Britain, that 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 croissant and coffee enraged me more than the Sue Gray report, and that really enraged me. So, okay. right. Well, here we go. We're getting very pissed. How much do you reckon a croissant costs when you're little? When I was little, yeah. Well, I know for now that I can go into the big Asda down near me and probably get a pack of six for a pound, one pound fifty. I'd have to say that they're probably not going to be such uh, good quality croissants as True. your as your six pounds ninety a cup of tea one. But this is the thing, though. If you go to France or Italy, you can still pick up a pastry and a coffee for under two euros. Yeah, like comfortably in most places. Like I, even when I went last summer, I went to Bellagio with Cyclist Magazine for a couple of big rides. Bellagio is like a incredibly tourist spot on Lake Como, and you could still pack, pick up a black coffee and like a pan au chocolat for like two euros, two euros thirty maybe. Well, there we go. Let's let's all move. Let's all move to Lake Como. Oh, except we can't anymore. We can go there for like ninety days a year or something. Exactly. Um, but let me switch on to some things that I'm actually liking to bring a positive note. One thing that I'm really liking, Tom Peacock becoming cyclocross world champion. First oh, yes. elite male from Britain to win the cyclocross world, I believe. Um, he's a really good rider. He's, he's did a really fun celebration. He did an amazing Superman celebration. He's done a few times before. He is a world champion in cyclocross and an Olympic gold medalist in mountain biking. He's only 22 years old and, you know, the world's his oyster. And I'm really excited for, mainly I'm very excited that Britain's next big talent in road cycling is someone who clearly has a lot of fun on his bike because, and this is not me digging at like Wiggins, Cavendish, Froome, Thomas, but the you know that old school that are kind of departing us now, and actually we're going to have an uh, an article on this in issue in the next issue of Cyclist, I believe, and sort of the departing of the old guard. Amazing riders, but none of them really inspired, did they? The way they rode wasn't a uh, you know make you want to go out and ride your bike like a kid. Whereas Tom Peacock is just really fun and does silly stuff on mountain bikes and cyclocross bikes and, and is going to do it on the road. Um, and hopefully he will inspire a next generation of boys and girls alongside people like Zoe Backstead and Evie Richards to, you know, ride their bike for fun and nothing else. 
Well, this is the thing. It's a big, there's a philosophical debate here between oh, between course. riding with panache and riding with elan, riding for fun. And for ages, cyclists have pursued the panache, the riding looking very, very cool, which from time to time, some of our riders did do. But cool isn't fun necessarily. So it's nice to see a bit of fun being injected back into a, what is, I would say, like rank your top five most serious sports. I'd put cycling probably at the top. It's a very serious sport. I'd put it up there with boxing and probably oh, clay pigeon shooting. Oh, yeah. Clay pigeon shooting. Well, or archery. Trap shooting. Uh, archery is very serious, actually. I think there's no, a zero. Imagine going to the bar after an archery competition. Zero humour. Yeah. Um, zero jokes given. And I, I've, I think that archery is probably one of those sports, one of the rare sports where the average wage of the participants or the, the average social standing of the participants are higher than are probably amongst the highest because i don't think you don't you don't get into archery like you don't get introduced to archery at the local leisure center no no you're not although we did do archery when we were children but that's because you grew up on a uh a baron's estate <laughs> no, that's not true. But, it's because i grew up in portsmouth joe and actually, it's illegal in Portsmouth to not practice your bow and arrow if you're over the age of 14 for an hour a day on the common. That's a decree by Henry VIII, mate. Okay, well, I'm enjoying Tom Pickcock being very good at cycling. And another thing I'm really enjoying is um, stretching. I've got to an age now where I have to I have to warm up and stretch before any kind of physical activity, Welcome cycling including. And I've just stumbled upon a really good 25-minute, 20-minute shin exercise uh shin stretching exercise to avoid shin splints which joe will now demonstrate for us now which is basically loads of sort of rolling the ankle lots of uh calf raises but it's really good <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad I'm going, i'll put a link I... to it in the description below for anyone suffering from shin splints because it's it stopped them for me i'll tell you what i used to suffer suffer from shin splints that's easy it for is, you to say isn't it easy for you to say debilitating Awful. Yeah. yeah. It's like knives. It's like someone using a hot knife to part part of your to part the muscle away from your body. You know when you like carve off a bit of chicken? Always felt like that. I felt like I could almost see it happening because effectively it's your bone being pulled away in little chunks off your shin. It's incredibly unnerving how little there is between your shin bone and the elements. <laughs> it's like the thinnest piece of skin, isn't it, on the body? So along with the bridge that. of the nose. They say that. Cuts easily. So um that, that exercise I'm enjoying. James, what are you liking and disliking at the moment? What's going on in your life? Well, a little bit like you, uh, disliking the fact that kind of almost nothing is happening in cycling. Cannondale released a new synapse, uh, which, surprise, surprise, uh, looks very much like every single other road bike now with dropped rear stays. Um, except but for it has a radar system on it. Well, this is the thing. I was just about to get to that. Except for the fact they decided, unlike every other bike these days, they would deliberately add about a kilo and a half by putting on a lighting system and uh, Garmin's Varia radar system, which basically tells a rider when a car is approaching. About to plough through them. <laughs> yeah, so the thing is, and that's which is now redundant because obviously now we've got the new highway code, cars won't hit cyclists ever again. So that's fine. So you don't need any of this anymore. It just adds unnecessary weight to a road bike. Um, I'm not saying the Garmin system isn't good. It is. That's to the side. I'm joking. But I just think it's a kind of, it's a mad one where, I mean, they've obviously done their market research, but it's kind of a mad one. The Synapse is one of the all-time most searched bikes in the road category on the internet. 
I would say it's the pinnacle. It was. It's been the pinnacle of endurance bikes. I would say. I, I in terms of like, I think you see probably in terms of people that have gone and out and out gone and to buy an endurance bike. I think you see more synapses on the road than you would any other, like you, more than you would a, an endurance, a Roubaix, uh, uh, like a Demane, for example. Exactly, it's the Big Mac of of endurance bikes everywhere. Um, and yeah, they've decided to stick lights on it with an integrated power system, which is, to my mind, just a bit of a strange idea. I hope to see people racing synapses. I, I like the lights thing. I like the lights idea. I, li- I like that. I like the integrated lights. I think I think bikes can start becoming a bit more... I do think one of the things that could happen with certain parts of the road bike industry, especially endurance bikes, bikes that are being sort of designed to be running over long distance, maybe for commuting, I think there could be the introduction of smart tech more, whether that's lighting systems that are integrated into bars or into headsets um, and are charged up, you know, especially if, as many people are predicting, Shimano 105 becomes electronic sooner rather than later. If you, or even if you brought in like kinetically powered rear lights to bikes, I think kinetically powered. You mean dynamos? I mean those things that were invented in like 1935, and we decided. Yeah, but they still, but they surely like using kinetic energy of the pedaling, you could charge a rear light constantly. I don't know. How should we power these lights? Which we use kinetic energy of the pedaling. <laughs> but I, you know what I mean though. I feel like I feel like introducing tech to stuff could make your life a lot easier. No, I have no problem with that. Uh, but I would circle back to something you said earlier there, Jan, which is for commuter bikes. It's great for commuter bikes. It's not great for road bikes. Um, and ultimately, I'd suggest that uh, that's maybe where Cannondale are pushing the sign-ups towards. They're pushing it more towards the market it realises is buying that bike that is a commuter-type market, which I think is probably very smart in a business way, but just a bit of a shame because I've always loved that bike as a fantastic all-round road bike. It's it's also being pushed as an all road bike because if you actually look at Cannondale's lineup, they've got the Top Stone, which of all of the sort of main hitter bike brands out there, the Top Stone I would say is probably the most advanced gravel bike because it's got the rear suspension system, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. Whereas it's not it's not like they don't have a road they don't have a bike out there that's like all road. You know, like the new Roubaix that can go up to like good tire this uh, tire clearances got the future shock on it you get other brands coming out there and being like this is a road bike yes but you can fit in 35 to 40 mil tires i feel like this enduro uh, this latest synapse has been brought out because i think is it 35 mil tires it can fit in there I, I feel like they're doing that to try and sort of appease a bit more of that all road market yeah, I mean, you might be right. We should probably actually ask Calendar what they think. Maybe we'll maybe I'll drop them a line, and then next uh, podcast we can actually have some concrete answers that aren't just you and I musing over things we know very little about. <laughs> 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 but no, anyway, hats off to Calendar. They're doing something different. Uh, but yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a shame, bit of a death knell in the uh, coffin for the. It's a knell, isn't it? It's a death knell. It's not a nail. It's not a nail in the coffin. It's a it's a ringing of the bell that signals. What's interesting, I find, is that I don't feel I don't think that we're going to see this new synapse being raced in the World Tour anymore, because the old synapse used to be used. The old synapse used to be used by the uh, EF Education team at races like Roubaix. I remember certain riders using that. Yeah, 
Years back, years back, Sagan would say Rebay on a sign. I don't think you'll see that in the pro peloton anymore because of the adjustments to the geometry. They've made it a more comfort, comfortable, slower bike. So, but anyway, what's something you're liking, James? What's something you're liking? Um, something I'm liking. Well, I've been uh, drilling a few holes in some balls recently. Nice. And I really like the little post-it note trick. What's that? You now, so you get a post-it note and you fold it in half. Right. And then, if you can kind of bear with me, you're kind of folding it in half and then you're taking the sticky bit and you're folding it in on itself and across so that you've made like a V with the sticky bit. And what that creates is like a little scoop with the remainder that you would normally write on. And then you can stick that little scoop sort of shape underneath the hole that you're drilling in the wall. Right. And then that, that catches all the dust. Oh, that, that's a nice little tidy hack. Great little tidy hack, really works. Don't older post-it notes. You've got to get some good glue on those post-it notes. Okay. But it's a fantastic use for a post-it note. I really enjoy it. That's good to know. And if you need another use for a post-it note, why not write something nice and leave it on the side in the kitchen for your other half? Another great suggestion from you there, James. Thank you, Joe. This episode is brought to you by Post-it Notes. <laughs> well, on that note, on that very lovely note, Let's go into our conversation today, which is with Mr. Nathan Haas. He's a former World Tour pro cyclist with the likes of Cofferdis, Garmin. He's been in Dimension Data. He had been in the World Tour for 10 years, but had realized that maybe it was time for a different challenge. So joining the likes of Ian Boswell, Ted King, and Lauren Tensdam, Nathan Haas is now going fully into the world of gravel racing. And we wanted to ask him why. And that is what you're going to find out in today's episode. Which isn't actually sponsored by Post-it Notes, just so you know. <laughs> it was a nine-year stretch that I didn't actually have a single winter. Because as soon as Europe got cold, I'd buggered off to Australia. And then uh, as soon as racing kicked off, I would slowly mosey over through the all the desert races to come into a spring that was warming up. And then damn COVID screwed it all up and I had my first winter last year and I just have so much more respect <laughs> for all the guys that actually live in Europe and do the winter because it's horrible. Yeah, you quickly forget how horrible it is. It's because you're based, you're, when you're in, the, in uh, Europe, you're Girona, aren't you? Yeah, we, we sort of do half the time in Girona, half the time in Andorra. But obviously you can't, you can't be in Andorra in winter because it's, you know, it's dangerous. And then you can't really be in Spain in summer because it's too hot. So we kind of got we got it figured out. Yeah, that's quite. You're lucky there. Have you done any? Have you ever been um, like done any of the Belgium, like the Northern European races, early, early season? Yeah, and it's honestly, it. it I still get like tingles on my spine when I think about it because it's just the worst. And I, you know, I've I've always wondered why they make the hardest races of the year in the worst time of year to have them. So it's always to like, um, it's to make sort of demigods of the people that are good at it. Plus, all the Northern Europeans can't deal with the heat. What's what's the hottest temperature you've raced in, Nathan? Actually, it was forty eight degrees at Tour Down Under in two thousand and eighteen. Fuck, I got heat stroke and was vomiting after the race. Didn't didn't know where I was. I was in a mess, and I was I was sitting top five on GC at that point, and I lost. I think. I was with the final group until 4K to go, and I lost 10 minutes in 4Ks. 
I just just lights out. It was horrible. Wow. Did you race again the next day or was that the last stage? No, I raced the next two days, but I think I lost more than 20 minutes each day. I was in a body bag. But then I was so sick from it that I started the Cadell's race and I think I did 20Ks before I just pulled over. Well, Nathan, worrying about being forced to ride in 48 degree heat and sandstorms by a really strict race organizer is something that realistically you won't have to worry about anymore because you're not a world tour pro anymore you're your own man as you've made the transition like some others like some of your, of your friends people like Lawrence Tendam Ian Boswell Peter Stettner into gravel for 2022 yeah gone are the days where my race program is dictated for me and uh, you know the the pressure to push through things that don't actually feel like they're right for your health. You know, now that decision sits firmly on my shoulder. So what, what do you think that new challenge will look like in terms of a racing calendar? The places that you go to, obviously we know that the UCI is now going to put together or is put, has put together a um, gravel race calendar. Um, how would that look and how would that differ? Because a lot of people are like, well, isn't this going to end up being like cross rebranded? How will it differ from cross for those people out there who aren't really familiar with the gravel racing setup? It's a good question. And it's a question with a few questions within it. So um, to, to break it down, I think we'll, we'll start with the second part of the question, which is to say, um, you know, how's it going to look? And I think I'm sort of sitting in the cinema with everyone else at the moment, watching the film premiere, you know, where we're a little bit in the dark at the moment in terms of exactly how it's going to be. Um, you know, the distances of the races, uh, you know, the, the format, the numbers, um, you know, there's there's a lot of unknowns. But from the information that I have is the UCI is not necessarily starting their own gravel races. They're piggybacking off pre-existing races. And I think what's really, I think, really suave about gravel is that every race, whilst it's under the banner of gravel, gravel is still very undefined. And it means that there is a very large gamut of variety within the races. Um, you know, let's, let's take a race, um, you know, if there's a World Cup in Tuscany, it's going to be very much just on the Strada Bianchi type roads. But then if we look going into some of the Scandinavian countries, they tend to, their gravel scene tends to be more sort of single track and technical. Whereas when you get to the States, you're on these huge, wide, open fire roads and Theoretically, you could actually do it on a road bike with pretty wide tires. You might not even need wide tires for some of them like steamboats. So the um, the formats are going to be something that I'm waiting for eagerly. I'm very excited to see what uh, sort of comes out. And I'm holding my breath that it becomes a little bit more technical. I think um, that's the one thing I think gravel racing might be missing. And I'm, I obviously have a bias that I would like to point out is that you know, I'm an ex-mountain biker. You know, I did, uh, you know, quite a few seasons before I did road uh, in the World Cup series. So, you know, technically speaking on a gravel bike, I think I have you know, the tendency to want the races to be a bit more technical. But in saying that, I'm going in with some experience, but I'm, I'm also going in as somebody that needs to learn a lot about what gravel racing is and even how the tactics play out. My, my first gravel races that I've done, I was, I was very quickly surprised at some huge differences between how you race a road race and then how you have to race gravel. So it's, it's um, I think for everyone watching this sort of unfold, it's going to be interesting. Um, there's definitely going to be some teething issues. There's, there's also a little bit of, um, you know, heat from those in the United States 
a little bit annoyed that the UCI is getting involved. Um, but um, we can get to this point as well later on is that I'm actually extremely happy that the UCI is getting involved. I was going to say before we get on to sort of the details, the UCI and, and race programs, when was there a point in 2021, so the year that's just gone, where you when when you made your mind up and was like, okay, I'm not going to go through the courting process of another world tour contract or finding a team. This is it. I'm going to jump in at the deep end and go into gravel. Do you know? Have you ever had the feeling where you were like really into a small band and you were like OG into that band, and then all of a sudden they like blow up and everyone's listening to it and you're sort of putting your hand up, being like, man, guys, I was. Oh. I was there from the start, man. Um, I've actually been riding gravel bikes for a hell of a long time. Um, you know, especially in Girona, it's it, it's insane. It's probably one of the best places in the world to ride gravel bikes. It's 360, and I'm still discovering new tracks every single time I ride. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was on a cyclocross bike, but now you would probably call it a gravel bike. You know, that's that's a thing now. There was a all of a sudden line in the sand. This is now gravel and. I was like, what the hell is gravel? And, you know, I'm watching these races sort of happen. I'm like, actually, that looks kind of cool. And um, over the last few years, I've just been dipping my toe in between races. Um, you know, I've always had to ask for permission from my teams if I'm allowed to go do, you know, extracurricular events. Um, and I just started to fall in love with a completely new discipline of the sport. It's still very much cycling. You have the same ingredients, but it's kind of just cooked a different way. And but for me, the big line in the sand was I went to the Novaroica in Bon Convento uh, earlier this year when the Tour de France was on. And I just had this kind of light turn on where I realized that, you know, I've, I've been a world tour pro now for 10 years, which is a long time to do any job, I think. But one of the things that I was starting to realize with road was, you know, in your first years, you're really trying to find out how good you can be. And then there's a certain point where you hit this level that it's like a ceiling that you're not going to break through. And then there's something slightly unsatisfying about that. And, and I've always really enjoyed working for other riders. And some of my biggest moments in cycling was being part of, you know, victories like monuments and grand tour stages. It's, it's an amazing feeling, but at the same time, there is a part in every athlete that they still want to see how good they can be. And I felt after COVID, uh, the kind of retake of racing, it just went to this speed that I've never seen in the peloton before. And it's desperation from everyone. It just felt like everyone thought it might be the last race forever at every single race. And then, I don't know, the, the kind of joy fell out of the bottom for me. And, um, you know, I was part of that Jacobson crash in Poland. Um, you know, I was, I had a metal barrier fly over my head and I was ducking from a metal barrier whilst trying not to crash in, in the body of guys. And I was fortunate enough not to fall off my bike, but I looked to the right and, um, you know, I, hopefully it's not too gory to talk about, but I looked down and there was a guy on the ground with half a face and there was so much blood coming out of him. I thought I was watching someone I know die in front of me. And it was, it was again, a little bit of a moment where I was like, you know, why are we doing this to each other? Like, this is insane. That's, I was just going to say, that's quite a common theme. We've spoken to a lot of pros who have, this side of the other side of 30 and that what you've just said is coming out of so many guys' mouths about the speeds the danger just the you start to question whether it's worth it kind of thing yeah I, I don't think i would phrase it in terms of is it worth it i think your values just maybe shift somewhat or um 
you start to maybe see through the facade of chasing fame and expanding your ego, or, or maybe you're just crushing your ego and you realize that maybe the reasons you first started cycling or the, or the points that you felt that you needed to prove, you know, you've probably done them by now. And, you know, you, I'm not all of a sudden going to become Peter Sagan, um, you know, in my next season is you, you don't take monumental leaps in your career often after 30. Um, so for me, I came to a point where I realized I was extremely satisfied with what I had done in road cycling. You know, I've done every race in the world. Um, you know, a lot of them more times than I can count. And, I started to think, you know, maybe there's something else I can do in cycling whilst still tackling it on as an absolute professional, not, not retiring, but really thinking I started seeing gravel kicking off in the United States. And then for me, I think the, the, the key was already in the ignition for, for many reasons. But I think the thing that turned the key was when I saw that the UCI was releasing a World Cup series. And I thought, OK, here we go. Now there's something I can actually see as a carrot. Um, and you know, there is a certain seriousness that comes with, um, a world cup series. And, and I think part of me was turned on by my old love for mountain biking. You know, I was in the world cup series for that. And once, once the decision was made in my mind, it was all of a sudden, like call the managers, guys, don't even bother talking to world tour teams. I don't want it. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and once I made the decision, it actually, became really reinforced once I was actually vocalizing that to, you know, to the right people. I didn't want my team to know that I wasn't because, you know, I, I took my, my job seriously until the last day and I'm, and I'm quite proud of my work ethic through it all. Um, and that's part of being a professional, right. But, you know, it, it was almost like this weight came off my shoulders where I was like, wow, like I'm really ready to move on to the next thing. Um, would I have liked to do some more years in the world tour? Sure but I'm more excited about the next step. So with that next step, how will it work in terms of, because you know before you're part of a big enterprise and you've got people managing everything from what you're drinking through to what shoes you're going to wear for next season. How does it work now? Because presumably you are racing, as a, you're going to be racing as a privateer and it's going to be a throwback. But even when you're racing mountain bike, you may well be have been part of a team. Are you now your own manager going around trying to get sponsors and who are those sponsors? You know, for example, what bike will you race next year? Or just one, just one that you've bought? Yeah, I, again, that was that was a question with quite a few questions. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try to answer it. I'll try to answer it to a way that we get everything in there. Um, I'll start off by saying yes, it is a serious upskilling from what I've been doing. Um, you know, I think part of also what I was getting a bit tired of in the world tour was you know, a decade of my life had kind of been pre-planned, predestined, predetermined by the people that I was working for, um, you know, where I'm supposed to be, what I'm doing, like you said, what I'm drinking, what I'm using. And, you know, one of the things that I can finally say now, not, now that I'm not under the thumb from it all is there was so much shit equipment that you're forced to use as well to a cyclist. And, um, you know, I, I fully respect and appreciate that the numbers have to work for a team and for often if it's not the best product in the world they're forced to pay a little bit more for a world to a team to use it and that can buy extra riders or pay for a new bus every year or just it just has to actually work financially for a team but one of the things i'm just so excited about now is i'm not dealing with any products i don't want anymore i'm now basically designing my dream bike 
um, dream partners. And I was, I was actually quite nervous about moving into this sort of, you know, pitching phase, you could call it. So, you know, I, I decided in my heart of hearts and I'm doing gravel and I think, okay, cool. Decisions made, close the door. Now I could push through another one, but I wasn't sure how I was going to approach that. And I wasn't sure what the reception would be to to that as well. Um, and there was also the risk that, you know, maybe financially it wouldn't even work. And that the whole plan that I've, you know, essentially quit road cycling for might have been for nothing. Um, but I was very fortunate in the sense that gravel is a tidal wave and no one's going to be able to stop it right now. And, um, you know, I've had my contemporaries of Pete Stetner, Boswell, Lachlan Morton, Alex Howes, Ted King, all funnily enough, ex-teammates of mine. I've raced with all of these guys and, you know, speaking to them for a long time. And, and, and Pete was also an interesting uh, influence for me as well, because I sort of asked him, I was like, you know, how, how do you begin this? Um, you know, I have, I have a lot of ex- pre-existing relationships with companies and brands because I've always been really focused when I'm working with any company in giving feedback to see if we can actually develop things. And, and I think this is one thing that a lot of people don't quite appreciate is that world tour cyclists take the road bikes and their equipment to the absolute edge. So we're the people that also have the sensitivity to feel what changes can be made to make it better. So a lot of development for companies does actually come from athlete input. And that was always something I found a lot of joy in doing. Um, so I've, I had some really good pre-existing relationships, which has helped. But um, I sold my project as a European-based gravel rider to essentially try to angle myself as the Pete Stetner of Europe. And also, I think a little bit different to just being a a European is that I actually am also part of the Anglo market. Um, You know, I have a lot of name familiarity in the States, in the UK, in Australia, plus everything just from general cycling world, having raced in the world tour. So you know, it came apparent to me quite quickly was every bike brand I spoke to, um, you know, some of them were through e-intros, some were just cold emails, but every single conversation basically went to the head of the department or even straight to the CEOs of the department because everyone has been looking for privateers to take on gravel predominantly based in Europe. And I think it's timing's been a big part of this. And, you know, the timing as well was definitely what influenced my decision is that, you know, maybe in two, three years, if I retired, there might be 30 to 40 guys that have retired from road to go do gravel. And it would probably be a lot harder to actually squeeze my way in. So it's been, it's actually been something that's really energized me is actually having these really fun business conversations. And essentially I'm learning a new language. You know, I've been speaking as an athlete for so long, but now I'm also the kind of director of a small business. And it's been it's been something I've really enjoyed, but it's also been quite touching to see that a lot of these ex- pre-existing relationships, um, you know, for, for example, I worked with Castelli for, for a long time when I was with Garmin and then through when it changed to Cannondale. And, um, you know, I called my friend Steve, who kind of heads up the company, and I sort of spoke to him about the project. And he was like, absolutely, we're in 100%, let's go. And it's just also been nice to kind of see how the cycling world, you know, it has these... Um, you have a lot of friends and then it all kind of comes together at the right point and it's 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 felt really quite wholesome did you draw up a like a sort of like a wish list because you said about one of the big things is not being no longer being forced to use equipment that you don't deem to be sufficient 
that's a good question. Actually, I haven't put, I haven't really thought about how I did it. I think more to the point is there's a lot of brands that I didn't want to use. Um, so I didn't open those conversations. Uh, you know, it, I think in cycling, there's not just like one of anything that's the best. I think it belongs to certain categories where, you know, either bikes or different level, different types of equipment fall into. And, you know, I generally focused on the things that I've loved in the past or always wanted to have ridden. Um, and that's very fortunately where the, where it's kind of laid. So what will your jersey look like? Do you get to design it? Yeah, so actually with Castelli, we're really excited about the fact that the UCI is staying out of all of it in terms of regulations and the sense that we do not actually have to give a jersey in for approval and then that's your jersey for the season. If we want to make changes, you have to have another approval. So we're, we're kind of taking this open board uh, and kind of clean slate to see that this is a huge opportunity to kind of tell stories and to be really creative. So uh, we've just finished designing our first jersey, uh, but there's going to be five up to 10 jerseys, the kind of the, the, there's no limit. And also with the bike partner that I have, which I'd love to tell you all, but we're, we're waiting for the bike to be all finished painted so we can kind of do a really cool release um but the bike is also going to be painted and then changed when the new jersey design comes in so all throughout the season i'm going to have a really fully coordinated look where there's kind of a lot of storytelling going into each one of the jerseys as well and the coolest thing is it's not all covered in logos <laughs> although there is something there is something admirable about an androni jersey there is something cool about that you can't you can't get away from no you you, you can't <laughs> but you'd have to go one way or the other it's like on a scale yeah. of like zero to androni you want to be on the kind of ends of the spectrum <laughs> yeah <laughs> and another thing nathan i'm quite interested in is like so for 10 years now you've been a world tour cyclist which means and and I don't sometimes I don't think like listeners may understand how much is done for you. And you've kind of alluded to how and I read in a, a recent blog you did that it, you kind of it's like being at school where you're told where to eat, what flight to get on. You've got to be on you're going to be in this car and then you're going to get out, you're going to warm up and you're going to race. And to that upscaling point, how much have you learned about having to do stuff like book air like sort of flights and hotels and and budgeting have you sort of gained appreciation for the fact that you stayed in some pretty terrible hotels probably because hotels are actually really expensive <laughs> <laughs> well actually i was i was joking about that i was sort of saying like you know i'm probably not going to bitch out the teams for or, or the races for booking these really horrible hotels all throughout the back end of france because now when it's coming out of kind of your overall budget for the year, you're like, oh, well, I guess, you know, that's, it's clean enough. There's a bed. <laughs> it's like, that'll do it. So, you know, it's, I, I think I'm actually learning a lot about the other side now. Um, and, 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 and in a way it's, it, it's probably quite a humbling thing that a lot of cyclists will never have, you know, they'll probably have all of these impressions of how things were without actually ever putting the shoe on the other foot. So yeah, to, to put it lightly, I've got a, a lot more work ahead of me, um, you know, than any pro cyclist does right now. Because normally you're you're about to go to your second training camp for the for the new year, where again you're just getting given all of your gear, uh, you're getting told what your race program is going to be, how your season might look, 
you know, the nutritionist is coming in with some flash new way to lose weight. You know, every year there's some crazy new scheme about how you've got to do just carbs or just protein or this or that. And, um, but, but in a way, uh, if you are an intuitive athlete, which I think is one of the issues about so much of this sort of control and monitoring and power meters all the time and this and that, is that, you know, all of these ways to kind of monitor and control things, I think we forget that we have the ultimate device in the world, which is the human body and your instinct, if they're actually in alignment, to actually be able to know what you need to eat at the right time, you know, how training should be feeling, how it shouldn't be feeling, how much sleep do I need to get? And, uh, you know, for me, I think one of the things that was frustrating me towards the end of my career was cycling is just getting out of control with how much they're actually trying to control in your life. And it's sort of like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not comfortable now with this level of monitoring or I'm not comfortable with this amount of commitment that I have to do in my spare time. You know, this should be time where I'm like defragging or actually trying to not think about cycling because if you become too myopic, I think you also get, you know, uh, a lot of riders that are starting to get, you know, sleeping disorders or eating disorders or mental health disorders. And, and I think that, you know, it's about being a well-rounded athlete and you can't make someone well-rounded by getting them to fill in, you know, a survey about how happy they are this day. It's sort of, it's missing the point. It's like, you know, if you're concerned about someone's well-being, pick up the phone and ask them how they're doing or, you know, how, how has it been not seeing your family during COVID or, you know, I know that maybe you've had a breakup or your wife's pregnant or your kids are sick at school, you know, p- pick up the phone um, and get on that. And I sort of feel that, you know, when I first started cycling, it was much more human to human. And as sports science has become so refined, which I also have a huge respect for, but I think my personal personal personality type is much more suited to a human to human level of interaction and if it's not if it's not suited to you then you're the problem you know because the the current system is not going to change because it is actually tailored to making athletes go faster than they ever have and i do believe also doing that in a clean way so i think the commitment that you have to put into being a cyclist on a team now goes so far beyond what it was when I first started in, you know, 2010, 11, 12. And uh, what I'm really happy about now is that I get to go back to my basics and, you know, I still have all of my support network that I've built around me throughout my career of people that I trust and also just pick up the phone. So I think, uh, you know, for me, this is also a way to squeeze out my last year's you know, I'm, I'm only 32, you know, that's not necessarily old in cycling. So I still think I have quite a few years at my kind of peak fitness ability. Um, and I'm just really happy that I get to squeeze them out now in the way that I know works for me. And in a way that I don't have anyone, you know, forcing me to make changes or feel guilty for not having done something. It's now it's, it's self-determination at its finest. And I'm really excited for it. So does that mean that you will sort of essentially travel as like an entourage of one in that kind of back to basics way? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but in saying that as well, you know, now I'm choosing my own race program and um, you know, if there's a race that's too much of a bugger to actually get to, I'm not going to (laughs) go or, or if there's um, there might be some events as well where, you know, some friends that do gravel are going and maybe we can, we can travel together and, and share each other's setups at different points when, you know, if you're the guy that turns up and you have a better setup than someone else, then the nicest thing about gravel is that it's a truly like inclusive sport. 
it really includes people, whereas road, I would say it's quite strictly exclusive. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, deterred by the fact that, yeah, now everything's on me to organize everything to get to races here and there. But for me, that's actually, it's quite cool. You know, I can drive with my family to a race now, whereas, you know, my wife was never allowed to come to any world tour race. No way. You know, they want to keep partners get the hell away from everybody. Um, you know, even some teams stop partners being able to come on rest days of grand tours. And it's for me, I think it's now it's a really wholesome experience that I'm looking forward to. And, and, you know, we might even be able to plan some races where we're visiting friends for a week before I actually go to a race or staying with friends here and there. So it's whilst taking it absolutely 100% professionally, there's a human side to the gravel racing that I think is very unique. Yeah. That's the, a, a, term that's bounded around a lot is spirit of gravel which is quite all-encompassing from the the attitude of gravel racing uh to what it's like after a race and that's not to say it's not competitive people want to win those races but there's not sort of maybe the cutthroat nature that there is in a professional uh racing where there's probably maybe some more at stake is that sort of spirit of gravel something that you're looking to embrace and do you think it's something that can be upheld as sort of more rules and more involvement from from sort of outside entities whether that be sponsors can can that sort of be continued you know the spirit of gravel and what people are what everyone's seeing from guys you know before and after races you know having beers or you know essentially enjoying what they're doing not just looking at it as a pure um, I have to win this, you know, I'm here to win. I think gravel attracts a certain type of rider that loves trying to win, but the win is, I, I wouldn't call it just a bonus, you know, that, that's underselling how focused the guys are. You know, Pete Stetton is still doing 20 to 38 hour training weeks every week. So it's not, it's not that it's that, but um, I think the, the, the clearer point to make is at the moment gravel is very much in its infancy and um, you know dare i also say it is that the depth is not the same as it is in the world tour so so maybe right now uh you know certain things that you have to take so seriously in road to be good you maybe don't have to do exactly that after a race um you know you don't have to go get a massage and uh you know have a perfectly crafted dinner before traveling because you know your next race starts in three days and so I, I think there's there's a relaxed nature to the sport by structure also by situation that it's quite new and and I think what um, what what seems to be the thing as well I think gravel is going to attract a certain type of athlete that might not be the perfect fit for this sort of new world to a structure which is what we were talking about before how strict it's gotten it's like guys still want to race guys still want to win but they don't want to feel guilty for maybe having a beer after the race or, you know, maybe having a fun travel week on the way to the race, you know, riding in different places, adventuring, seeing really amazing places, maybe riding with some friends on the way. But I think one of the things that I pick up from my American friends when I talk about my enthusiasm for the World Cup series is that they're like, they're going to come in and screw the spirit of gravel. And it's a fair point because it does seem as though gravel has built itself to be very unique and this kind of spirit of gravel. But I think there's going to be a lot of different things under the umbrella of what we call spirit of gravel. And I think that's what's going to kind of develop. And 
I'm not going to say I have a crystal ball here to predict the future, but I do think that there is going to be different forms of gravel. And, and we already see it now. You know, there's the Lockheed Morton doing, you know, the trans, uh, oh goodness, I'm forgetting the name of the race in Spain, but the one where they don't sleep for essentially two nights. And, you know, never, Badlands. Uh, Badlands, that's it. Badlands. That's one type of gravel racing, which is completely different to, let's say, Unbound or Steamboat. It's a very different thing, but we're still calling it gravel and, and everyone's associating the spirit to be the same. But it takes a very different type of person to want to take on Badlands. And I, I can assure you that I will never be doing any of this ultra endurance stuff. I've, I've suffered enough in Grand Tours to not have any, any need to, to, test my, to test my kind of ability to keep going. For me, I want to go to races and just go really fast and race guys going really fast. And with the UCI getting involved, um, you know, part of me also thinks that maybe some guys who are the kind of heads of state in gravel right now are maybe also just a bit threatened that there might be a bit more depth coming in because of it. A point in cases at the end of last year, Remco of Anapol was sent to, uh, I can't remember, the gravel race in the US by... Belgium, Belgium Waffle Ride, I think. Belgium Waffle Ride, yeah, I think so. And, you know, that's... Um, that would have obviously, well, quite clearly been a move by Specialized because Specialized have, you know, their own interests in the gravel market. And I guess on that spirit of gravel point, I guess some maybe some of the worry is that as it becomes more of a sort of a profitable area for brands to make money, the worry is, is that in a year or two, you might have the big team Ineos Death Star turn up for Tom Pidcock to go ride, I don't know, Grinduro in the UK. Um and it completely sort of subvert what everyone thought that discipline was as it becomes a sort of a place where a bike brand like Specialized or Pinarello or Trek can sell bikes and sort of advertise their, their product, I guess. You know, if let's take that example um, and let's study that for a concept for a second. So, you know, it, I think if Pitcock turned up to a gravel race with his spaceship machine, I think it would actually be a negative stain against the brand. And I think what most brands will actually be doing, and it's sort of the discussion that I've heard from a lot of the companies I'm talking to, everyone's like, no, 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 we want to make this look like feet on the ground. We don't want to make anything look big and flashy. So I think, I think people are at least sensitive. Well, I, I hope people are at least sensitive to, enough to know that that would actually damage the branding or marketing that they're trying to do from that particular exercise. Um, but if that does happen, that does happen, and, and, and there'll always be kind of like a core group of people within the gravel world, which I think will be the majority that says that stinks. But I think the overall point that I want to make with, with gravel is that um, the tour series is not UCI registered, and it's one of the coolest couple of races i've ever seen i saw them in um canary wharf and i thought it was one of the most banging events i've ever seen and that's not uci these guys are all racing their hearts out the sponsors are all happy the crowd was immense and that's standalone right that's not trying to be uci and the guys don't want that to be uci because it would change its whole vibe but then there's the tour de france on the other side of the other side of the coin here and the Tour de France is not affected by the fact that the Tour Series occurs and the Tour, de, the tour Series isn't trying to be the Tour de France, but they're both bike races. And I think, you know, this is where the conversation, I think, is getting a little bit, um, you know, primary school here and saying one is good, one is bad. It's like, I think they're both good. 
if we look at them for what they are. And I think the World Cup series is actually just going to be about let's go see how fast we can go because it's the same amount of guys trying to win a gravel race. Just because a gravel race has 3,000 starters doesn't mean that there's 3,000 elite riders. The World Cup is just going to be, from what I think the races are going to be, it's going to be a lump of elite riders which will form the group organically from the start because that's what it is. You know, it's not it's not starting with 3,000. But then that doesn't, in my opinion, have any effect on what Unbound is going to be like in the States where it is a 3,000 field or maybe bigger. But I don't think it's def- it, I don't think it cheapens what Unbound is trying to be, and it doesn't necessarily mean that Unbound has to change to anything else, because the spirit of gravel at Unbound is going to be a completely different experience to what you're doing at the World Cup. But I don't see any stain on cycling for actually making an elite thing. And and on that note, um, you know, I'm still running the risk right now of not even getting a start at Unbound, whereas I know I can get a start at the World Cup race. So. You know, in one way, as a professional gravel rider, if, if I'm allowed to call myself that, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what a professional gravel rider actually is right now. But let's let's just let's just um, let's just coin it that for the moment. As a professional gravel rider, you know, is it not more fair for me to target the World Cup series because I know I'll actually get a race start? So, with obviously the spirit of gravel is an all-encompassing term that encompasses an entire discipline. But if you kind of like drill down into the spirit of a gravel race, what does that look like again for people that aren't familiar? So I think you could kind of sort of say the spirit of a road race is to be very, very organized, borderline, sometimes flipping boring. How does a gravel race compare to that? I think the fundamental difference is it's more like a club road race where no one has a teammate. And I think that's the, truly, that's the fundamental difference between gravel and road is that, you know, on, on the day I'm trying to win as is the guy next to me, as the guy next to him and as to him. And, you know, in road racing, sometimes you get that black swan event where there's an unexpected winner, but, you know, it's, it's the 20 favorites from the 20 different teams with eight guys behind them, servicing them at every point, whether that's for wind, whether that's for bottles, whether that's for a lead out or smashing it up a climb. Gravel is totally different in the sense that you're trying to form gaps and, and breaks in the peloton and you're all working together like you're in a breakaway to kind of keep that gap going on. But at the same time, you're not shelling out for anyone. You're not going back and getting a bidden and you're also completely unsupported. So, you know, your preparation matters. You're, you're pre-thinking about equipment, tires, tire pressure, how much food you're going to bring, you know, how, what kind of bottles you're even going to take on the bike. Um, you know, whether you use like a camelback kind of device. So it's, it's, it's putting the onus back on the rider as an individual, but it's not as individualistic as mountain biking, which is really like, how hard can you go? If the guy in front of you can go harder, he will win. If you crack, you're going to get second. Whereas gravel, there's still a lot of tactics that come into play. So like, you know, do you commit to go over the top of the guy over the top of the climb with a guy like Pete Stetner that's going to drop most guys over a climb or do you try to save a bit of energy come back on the downhill where he's weaker and then once that group that maybe you've gone to is established do you commit fully and kind of the thing that seems to happen in gravel which everyone tells me is that everyone really rides honestly to their ability and Pete was telling me about the gravel race I'm gonna I'll screw it up if I try to remember which one it was but 
he was in a group of four riders. I think Alex Howes, Lockie Morton himself, and this one other rider that was having a bit of a breakthrough performance to be in that group with them. Everyone was swapping off doing really equal turns. And then this sort of more unknown rider started sitting on for the next 10K. And Pete still being in the roadie brain was thinking like, this sucks. We're just towing this guy to the finish line. And they're like, can you swap through? And he's like, guys, I'm screwed. And they're like thinking like after 10 Ks of him saying, good, that's a little bit coy. But then at kilometer 11, he just slowly drifted off the back. And when, when they all finished, they were like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry for like getting a bit fussy with you. You were genuinely like unable to help the group anymore. And you were just trying to get fourth, staying in front of the group in front. So there's, there seems to be this, I wouldn't call it full honesty. I'm sure there's still some games played, but tactically it's unique because everyone is trying to get their best result that they can. Whereas on road, sometimes I'm told your job's to get to this point. And then if you finish, we don't even care. When you told your sort of counterparts in the professional peloton that you were going into gravel, what was the general consensus? Oh, look, I think it was the worst kept secret in the world because, you know, if you, if you followed my Instagram or kind of, one of my friends, I think everyone's a bit sick of me talking about, you know, this, this new love of mine, you know, riding these gravel bikes. So I think everyone was sort of saying, you know, a few, a few people sort of expressed their sadness and thinking, you know, Nathan, you could have stayed in the world tour. You could have done this for longer or like, you know, maybe 32 is too young to retire from this, or, you know, I'm also going to miss a friend, uh, you know, in the Peloton. But, uh, you know, I think so many people just know me as someone that follows my passions and can see how excited I was and how enthusiastic I was about even just talking about the idea of it. So by the time, you know, I was telling people, this is what I'm doing, you know, people were like, dude, this is going to be great. And, you know, everyone's, everyone's been super supportive and it's, again, it's felt quite wholesome. Do you think that could be a bit of an exodus? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if you would have come across this because your life has been um, 10 years as a pro cyclist, but working very boring office jobs let me tell you occasionally you get someone that kind of goes do you know what i'm out and everyone else goes it's possible you're allowed then, to do that <laughs> yeah and then they go and have a wonderful life and you're like i could do that and and that can kind of spark this like sudden um yeah sudden exit from a lot of people do you foresee that happening uh road transitioning into gravel people just being like do you know what screw this for a game of tin soldiers you know i i actually 100% do and and again, I think it comes down to a little bit of that, like I was speaking about the timing of all my decision. Maybe it was a little premature to leave the road, but in terms of timing, it's sort of like now's go time. Now, now instead of being taken over by the tidal wave, maybe I'm surfing it. And um, But I can't kind of claim myself to be the, the creative one that was first to think about this because I think for me, um, you know, Pete Stetner is just this, shining example of somebody that said, you know what, enough. I'm going to go follow this other thing that I love. And he's turned it into a, such a successful business that I think he's probably making more money now on gravel than he, he did on the road. Um, you know, I don't know that for certain. And, you know, I've certainly not done this for financial reasons. Um, I can definitely show you on that. But it's, for me, it's sort of, again, like a little bit of a message to myself as well that, you know, life's not all about money. <laughs> Um, you know, we're, we're not actually here probably for as long as we'd all like and, and certainly not able to be as physical for as long as we'd like. So, you know, for me, I, 
I'm, I'm really following my heart in wanting to try to squeeze out the last of my absolute best athletic ability in a discipline that I'm falling in love with. So if that inspires other people to do the same thing, that's great. But, you know, more than trying to convince professional riders to maybe change discipline, I think the job that I take much more seriously is trying to inspire anyone to ride a bike at any time. I think that's been something that I feel is an important tenet of who I've become as, as someone that cycling has taken over their life is if I can inspire people to be more active, to feel the freedom of what it's like to be on a bike, you know, create independence for a kid, you know, that doesn't have a car yet. I think, you know, there's, there's endless reasons why I think cycling is, you know, the finest sport in the world. I think gravel, I might be able to inspire to a whole new audience and, and kind of keep, the continuity and one of my life goals is to encourage people to be active and find happiness and clarity through action as opposed to um you know thinking overthinking it i think sometimes just getting on a bike it's like a happiness machine and for me getting out in gravel in nature away from cars meeting new people uh being at events where you know i'm on the same course as a 65 year old woman that's just taken it you know, six hours slower than it took for me. But at the end of the day, we both had an equal to adventure. I think there's something very humanizing about what gravel is becoming. And I think if we talk about the spirit of gravel, I think that's, that to me is the, is the key. It's, it brings us together in a common experience. Maybe I just went faster, but at the end of the day, we all actually feel like we've done something together. Even if I don't know the person, I think everyone at every one of these events feels this kind of like you know you could almost call it a tribal energy and 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 i think it's um yeah it's, it's highly addictive and i hope i can help people find this very healthy addiction yeah um you mentioned their speed actually that's that's an interesting point how does your fitness on the road kind of compare to your fitness in gravel so i think this still stands as a record correct me if i'm wrong so uh, dirty kanza became unbound and the unbound course record is still, I think, Colin Strickland. So nine hours, 58 minutes. So that's 200 miles, nine hours, 58 minutes. You run the numbers, you know, the guy's doing 20 miles an hour, 32 kilometers an hour on average. And he's basically sort of doing that on his own for a lot of it. That's incredible. And that apparently, according to Strava Files, 273 watts he's averaged over that 10 hours. How does that compare to what you would do in road and how have you had to change your training or not? Do you just jump on a gravel bike and off you go? You know, it's, it, this is where I'm a little bit at the, the mercy of what I'm about to kind of jump, you know, head and toe into. I think, you know, obviously there is an expansion of the overall engine that you get from doing this many years in world tours and, and certainly, like, after I did my first Grand Tour, the next season, it felt like I had three more gears on my bike. You know, so that there's a lot of development that happens from being at the World Tour. But I think the big difference is road is a race where you try to attack away from people and you win the race from the front, whereas I think gravel is more like it's, it's a hard man's race. And generally speaking, you hear more about guys cracking and getting dropped off the back. So it's about not getting dropped and then trying to find a way to win when everyone is absolutely on their knees. And, you know, to ask the question, like, have I ever done a 10 hour race? 
no. <laughs> How's that going to go the first time? I've got no idea. How do you train for a 10 hour race? And you know, the question comes to me all the time. It's like, you know, marathon runners don't do marathons to practice. You know, I think there's a certain element where you just have to trust that your engine is big enough and that your energy stores are enough and your discipline to keep eating throughout the race is enough. But yeah, to, to think about 32K an hour average on the gravel, like that's fast. Like that is freakishly fast. And then to think about that over 200 miles is like, when I first started thinking about it, I was like, that's, that's madness. But one of the big differences with gravel is that you don't all of a sudden have this like 20 minute shuffling position to get into the most important corner before the 10 minute climb where everyone's doing seven and a half watts per kilo for 10 minutes. You either make it or you don't. It's race over if you don't make it. It's race on if you do. Because gravel is such a grind out for so many hours, it's like you're not ever going to have like a crazy f high five minute power for the race. You know, it's like, I think the the five minutes that you try, probably try to do towards the end of the race to win, it's probably like a really under underwhelming <laughs> number. Um, so I think so much of about it's going to come down to just how you can suffer, but then also, you know, all your experience from understanding nutrition and your intuition on how you need to eat and think and play tactics. So I think, I think there's a lot of carryover. I, th I think more than a lot of carryover from, you know, having experience with the world tour. I think it's also a lot of carryover from all my experience mountain biking, especially understanding how to fix your own bike. You know, that's, that's something I think a lot of roadies that come across all of a sudden have a huge learning curve, but it's its own beast, man. And the gravel races that I've done, you know, I've tried to attack and like, how are these guys already on my wheel? And you know, if you try to attack on a gravel bike, the acceleration is so slow that you can't just get that like fast jump away from everyone. So the guys can sort of just like slowly like move across and get onto your wheel. And I, I learned really quickly that that's not how you win a gravel race. You can't just like hit everyone and try to get away solo. It's like you have to get into a slug match and then just at the right point, hope that everyone's cracked and you just lift the pace and then kind of move it on from there. Maybe win solo or come in with a small group and try to win a sprint. But tactically gravel is a completely different beast when you look at it from a physical demand and for training, trying to work out how I'm going to evolve that now. No, I haven't quite figured it out yet. So Nathan, before we let you go, because we've kept you for an hour of your evening, because obviously you're in Australia, so in the, in the lovely warm sort of, sort of the sun's probably setting about now as we're sort of all wrapped up. I wanted to know uh, before we go, what is the biggest thing you're not going to miss from the professional peloton? The, the thing you're happiest to leave behind? And secondly, in this new adventure as a gravel racer, is there a particular part of the world or is there a particular country that you're sort of gunning to go visit and actually see for a change? Because for the last 10 years, you've just seen the indoors of hotels and then your power meter or stem as your trying to get to the top of a mountain somewhere in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've spent some time in team buses. I'd hate to know how many hours of my life I've actually spent <laughs> in a team bus. But, um, okay, the thing I'm going to miss the least is French pasta. When you go to a <laughs> race hotel and there's the buffet and the pasta comes out, like who knew you could turn pasta into such sloppy disgusting unedible mess it's just it's embarrassing what it's embarrassing what you have to eat at some races 
So it's definitely going to be the French cooked pasta. It's just disgusting. That's that's fair enough, actually. The one of the worst things I've ate was in, I was only like 10 miles from the border of Italy. And I got a pizza in France, which was just a baguette that they'd put passata sauce on and put under a grill. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah, is there anywhere in the world that you're like, you know what, this gravel, this gravel thing, I can do what I want. I need to go visit this place. Yeah, there's, there's two races on my calendar this year that I'm just dying to get to. Two places I've actually never been um, is Kenya for the migration race. I think that's going to be, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a phenomenal experience. And it's a multi-day stage race as well. So it's not just one day. It's, it's a big adventure. And um, I think the colors, the, the cultural differences, and the, I think the whole experience is going to be mind-bending when you compare it to the you know the lifestyle of a world tour cyprus it's going to be yeah it's, it's probably going to shock me in some ways but in in the way that i want to be shocked you know it's it's going to be freaking incredible and i'm interested in seeing you know what's kenyan food like you know that's going to be that's going to be a whirlwind in its own right but um the other one's the iceland rift and racing on the dark rocky soils of iceland past the water that's just glacial blue and the skylines i think the photos I've seen of the Iceland Rift, I think probably the most beautiful of any of the gravel races. So that's that's what I'm dying to get to. There we have it, James. Nathan Haas, um, giving up a life in the World Tour, pretty comfortable life in the World Tour, for a completely new, exciting adventure as a professional gravel rider. Pretty disappointed. Uh, Nathan, who I sp- spoke to on a few occasions before, is a huge history buff. Um, so I was quite disappointed we didn't get onto history, but you know, maybe another time. <laughs> what's what's his specialist? What's his specialist era? Like the ancient Mesopotamia, or you know, more like Nazi Germany? He's really, really into the Bronze Age. Oh, but, nice. Uh, um, no, so yeah, it's, it's it's exciting for Nathan, and I think it's exciting for the industry that you know, gravel's continuing as he alluded to this massive wave that it's getting on. I was pretty skeptical. I'll be honest, James. I thought gravel wasn't going to get that far beyond the borders of the United States in terms of a discipline, mainly because where we live in the UK, where most of our listeners live in the UK, gravel is a completely different entity. Um, And as he kind of explained, you know, if you race in Tuscany or you race um, Grinduro up in Northumberland or you go ride in Colorado, you're doing three completely different things. And I never thought it was going to take off in the UK, but I, I'm kind of changing my mind now. Well, yeah, and they said the same thing about mountain bikes, didn't they? They'd never they'd never take off. The Europeans were very, very sceptical about mountain biking. Uh, and I know most European brands still can't make a mountain bike, but it happens. And I feel like it's just the world is a cyclic beast. There is nothing new under the sun. And I reckon the first these first few years, you know, keep your eyes glued on the gravel scene because they'll be they'll be the halcyon days. And I, I say this because I I'm I'm gonna put money on. I won't be around to see this happen because it's gonna take a hundred years. But in a hundred years' time, we'll look back on this in the same way that we look back on the Tour de France starting. So 1903 Tour de France, the racers are all privateers. They're paid 15 francs a day. They get their uh, you know their bread in the morning and they might be lucky to get a hotel which one of their mates might own in the village that they end up in and slowly but surely who starts the money comes in through sponsorship trade sponsorship bike sponsorship 
The organisers don't like that because it messes with the actual way that the races pan out because riders start racing for the brands to win, not for themselves, so it creates teams. So then they go, right, we're going to race by nationality because that's going to reinstall some pride. And then eventually, so they outlaw lots of bike sponsors, basically. Um, and then eventually the trade sponsors do come back in because the sport needs the money and it becomes ultra competitive, ultra organised. And what and, was, and one thing that doesn't happen along the way is the club structure that supports so many other sports. And so you just get into this dyspraxic world where... Great riders left high and dry at the end of the seasons. Amazing teams fold. And then there's the other thing. And apparently no one's allowed to wear the jersey. So that's one thing I hope that will change with gravel, is that they'll make some killer jerseys and people will wear them and they'll buy into it and those proceeds will go back into the sport in the same way that you and I know, Joseph, a football club will buy a player and, you know, United, Paul Pogba, he paid for himself within about a week. You know, that's a complete misnomer. Is it actually? Yeah, so Adidas will pay a fee at the beginning of the year to manufacture Man United's kit, say $250 million. And then any profits made by selling merchandise after is kept by Adidas. Interesting. However, I would that's very interesting. I, I didn't know that. But I would say that still reinforces why a team will buy a player to sell shirts. Because it means Adidas comes back next year and goes, you you guys are a lucrative entity. Of course, you if you if you've got better players, you've got Adidas making your kits and not Macron. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with to, Macron. But kind of to your to your point, also in a hundred years, are we going to get um, like Peter Stettiner, who's since won four editions of Outbound, um, Unbound, sort of going on uh, Belgian television saying that the guy who's just won four editions doesn't count the same as his four editions because cycling was better in his day. Oh, yeah. In the same way that Rogers of Lomit does his annual Belgian address of Tom Doonan's Not the Rider <laughs> I Was, despite us both having an equal amount of Faroe Bay titles. Rogers of Lomit is a man that hid under a bridge during a race. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then he hid under the bridge because he's so far ahead. He, he also, famously, a little uh, fun anecdote about Rogers of Lomit is that we featured him in the magazine for a profile not a couple of few years ago and he did it on the proviso that we allowed him and his mates to go out for dinner on our and we paid for it wasn't that isn't that the case i do believe that <laughs> i do believe that was the case that is yeah that's uh that's that's old school hard-nosed cycling business right there um but yeah gravel the spirit of gra- like you because you're much more in the scene than i am james you've taken part in the rift you've done other gravel events i really haven't dip my toe in in sort of turning up to these events yet um so is there like this spirit of gravel that everyone sort of harks on about is it really there are you all kind of like wearing your lumber jack shirts and sharing um tobacco like your golden virginia around yeah i mean that's something that that's something that i hope to see in years to come is the return of tobacco sponsorship <laughs> to, of, of you know of big big tobacco coming back yeah the marlborough man Firing the start pistol at Dirty Kanza, um, so we can hope for that. Yes, there's you know a lot of smoking that ha- no, that's not, this is all. No. I would say yes that that bonhomie and that camaraderie is definitely there, and that does come from a sense of every you know you, you don't have teams, so most people are going to be rocking up on their ones, and you're going to have to sort of make friends, and you want to have a nice nice event. But also the reason it's there is because it's amateur. Like I know there's the sharp end of the race, and 
you do see people kind of sudden you know a very pro looking rider turning up very late in the day to take the first line on the grid and then off they go and that's the last time you see them and they look a bit moody and they don't know that they're having much fun but the majority of the racing is amateur and that's why the spirit's there so i i don't know how you keep that and if you look again to mountain biking back in the 70s um the clunkers came along so you had uh people racing in you know cut off jeans racing repurposed beach cruisers down california Santa Cruz, Mount, um, what's it called? Mount Talampe or something like that. Anyway, details, details are never important, are they? Point being, it went from being this very spirited counterculture, which is what gravel is. That's why people love it. It's counterculture to tradition and establishment to then people being like, hey, we can monetize this. So I don't, it's very difficult to protect that. I don't know how you do it. I suspect it probably won't do it. But there's no point in jumping the gun because for now... I, I've got an idea. Yeah, I've got an idea. Um, my my idea is that everyone at a gravel race has to be wearing one piece of denim. That's good. And secondly, your bottles can only be filled with alcohol. I mean, that would definitely help. That would definitely help. I'm sure. I'm not. And again, I say bring back alcohol uh, advertising in sport. There's not enough of that. There needs to be more more Ray, more Ray Reardons drinking a pint of Guinness at the side of a of a but yeah so something like that but like it seriously what they could do you know totally from day one there's no such thing as race radio there's no communication like that you keep everything strictly private privateer no teams and you make I think the big one you make people carry their own nutrition and to a degree their own spares. Now, if you've got dirty Kansas and you've got 200 miles across the Kansas prairies and it gets strung out and you suddenly you're wilting because you've run out of liquid and you're and you flat and you're just walking along these Kansas prairies in 35 degree heat, that ain't no good. So you're going to have to have some safety on the course. But I'd like to see backpack brands sponsoring riders. Oh, like a like a Yan Sport or an Eastpac. Yeah, like a Yan Sport. Yeah. That'd be the pro- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bring those or Herschel, you know, that really rubbish backpack that everyone has. Herschel. Yeah. Or what's the uh, what's the like weird briefcase that's got uh, like that also turns into a wheelie suitcase? Is it like Wagner or Wegner? Oh like, yeah. Badge. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know the ones. Yeah. yeah. And the people that use them tend to be wearing suits, but running trainers on the train. Yeah. So all of this, but I'd like to see riders with backpacks because this is what I noticed. I wrote, did a did a ride in um, Norway years ago, road ride, but everyone showed up with a backpack except for me. And what was in their backpack? Food, spares, spare clothes, because they're just like we get stuck. There's no one going to help help us out. Or you, or you go on the other way of looking at, it, and you go down the sportive route, which I quite like, is that there's actual designated feed zones where you've got like, so it's like okay, every fifty k or forty k, there's a feed zone with a local mechanic yeah so if you've got a problem you don't have your own mechanic but you've got john from john's bike shop who's there and he's got his little stand and his van and you're like john i've bent my rear hanger and he gets it up on his stand and he and he adjusts it for you and you're like okay i bought my own food but i've gone through it or it's really hot so you've got to go over to some some woman who's in a village hall who pours you out some cheap Tesco own brand squash <laughs> and then you get going again because then that keeps it grounded because then you're not, you know. That does keep it grounded. You know, you're, you're not getting like, key, um, what is it? The Is it ketones? Ketones, yeah. Or um, sort of like, I don't know, superfoods. 
Yeah. You're kind of just relying off of like Tesco own brand, Flapjack and Squaw. Yeah, Neutral John and Susan in the church hall. Exactly. And that, that would 100% help to keep it amateur and sort of in, to, in sort of keeping to a spirit. Yeah, those yeah, definitely those sorts of things can work. So effectively what you're saying is you need to continue to implement a bunch of things that slightly hamper, if not sabotage, progress just to keep it all on a relatively even competitive footing. All right, yeah, fair enough. I'll submit those to David Lepashian in an email later today. Um, we'll, be, we'll bring the episode to an end there. Um, Thanks again for listening. Thank you to Lindsay, our producer, for putting together the episode. Thank you for Nathan for coming on and talking to us from his lovely uh, Australian home in that warm. Do you remember sun that? Sun. Drench. She was wearing a t shirt. Oh, graceful. Um, so, and we, if you enjoyed this, make sure you leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, Spreaker, Amazon, wherever you listen to us. Share us as well with your other mates. Make that your like. You know, 2022, what I'm going to do, share this podcast with people because it's great. And if you do that, we'll be really happy. Um, but in the meantime, James. Joe. Until I talk to you again, go and enjoy a lovely gravel ride. Go forth and gravel ply. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.